Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. So, you know, every time I talk to someone in this podcast, I always, you know, try to get, you know, how they got into birding and, and what was, uh-huh. so the first question is always, you know, what was your gateway bird? Oh, okay. Well, my gateway person was my brother's fourth grade teacher. She got him interested and I was in seventh grade then and then I got interested and uh, a gateway bird, you know, I've never really thought about that too much. I would say the, the fee, the the thing that is most nostalgic for me and takes me back to that time is spring when spring just starts to unfold and things are just unthawing and I hear the first red winged blackbird. I think that may be one of my gateway sounds anyway. Um, I remember seeing a morning warbler too when I was a kid that really kind of blew my mind and Henslow Sparrow hearing Henslow Sparrow. I can still hear that. I've had dreams about hearing Henslow's sparrow call, <laughs> which is kind of weird. But um, um, there was a woman uh, um, who was, used to take my brother and I around uh, birding, and uh, and I remember once she took us to this spot, and I remember hearing that Henslow sparrow little schick kind of sound, and it was just so cool. Um, and uh, when I was a kid, um, I, I grew up, uh, after the age of 12 in Ithaca. So I had the the benefit of being around a couple guys there, including doc, Dr. Arthur Allen and um, Peter Paul Kellogg. And they um, really took us under their wing and used to, you know, have us come on trips with them. And eventually we were leading trips. And one of our goals, um, Cornell used to have a, a Monday meeting where they would l- read the whole bird list for the area. And if you saw the bird, you'd, you'd chirp up and um, you'd get your name on the board if it was the first sighting for the year. And our goal is to have 40% or 45%, I think it was, of the first sightings for the spring of some year. And we eventually hit that. I think I was in 11th grade. <laughs> but um, oh. it was fun. And, and so, you know, you had this morning warbler and Henslow Sparrow and the sound of Red Winged Blackbird is your your gateways. Um, yeah. You know, how how young were you when you first started birding? Well, I was I had skipped a grade. So I was in se- I was in seventh grade. So I would have been. Um, let's see. Uh, seventh grade. I think I was 11. I believe. And, uh, yeah, and then I did, I birded quite a lot with my brother, you know, during those years of high school and so on. But then when I went to school, went to college for a while, and I got a recording contract, you know, sort of a short-lived, but uh, with CBS, and then I got into the music world. And at that point, I started touring and various things. So I wasn't, I didn't do too much birding until I got back into the real world, which wasn't until I was about 35 <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so uh, touring you know, what, what kind of musician were you um well i uh used to play all kinds of music um from contemporary classical music i played quite a lot of that i played some jazz some pretty out there jazz sometimes and, and the group my group that i toured with was very popular in the college concert circuit and we did kind of weird mixtures of folk and renaissance music and some really weird stuff and it, it wasn't really like what became new age it was a little 
a little more broad, <clears throat> sorry, broader than that. But um, it was sort of a weird conglomeration of things. And then I would play other stuff uh, when I was off the road with my band. But um, it was a lot of fun. I always told people at Roland, eventually I got a real job at Roland Corporation. And uh, I used to tell them there's no corporate boardroom experience like 5,000 people calling for their fourth encore. Right. And no matter how good you think it's going to get here, it's never going to get that good. But, and I did some touring. I toured with the Grateful Dead for a while, and I did some work for Phil Collins and a bunch of other people. Um, I got into digital editing very early uh, on and um, worked with George Blood from the Philadelphia Orchestra. I trained the FBI, actually, in digital editing at one point. So it was kind of a mixture of lots of different things. Um, and so is once you were done being a touring musician, is that when birding kind of crept back up in your life? or? Yeah, mostly it happened um, for for a little while. I, I had a, another job in the music business uh, while I was still doing a lot of studio work. But when I got the Roland job, um, I, I came in as regional sales manager, but then I became national sales manager. So my office was in Los Angeles, and I lived in the East Coast. I lived in Philly at the time and now in New York. And um, so I used to commute to L.A. and spend like, 10 days or nine days out there. So I had the weekend and that's when I really started birding again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thank a lot of people like uh, Mary Freeman and Nick Freeman and various people from Los Angeles Audubon for sort of guiding me around at first what, what the birds were out there. And then I eventually started doing a lot of lectures out there and different things. But that's kind of when it happened. And, and when you started birding again, you know, did it come back really quick to you? Yeah, I mean, I'd never completely stopped. So um, I would say, you know, I always would do a little bit here and there when I was on the road if I had a chance. But what what really happened is I started first doing a little bit of chasing for rarities and then sort of getting more and more into the identification. And then I started traveling um, to bird outside the U.S. I'd say that's when my identification skills started to become more precise and because um, I would study a lot for the birds I was going to go see outside the U.S., and in particular the vocalizations. So I started to develop the system of memorization and sort of analysis, and a lot of the things that led to the Warbler Guide came out of that, those experiences when I was preparing for trips. Uh, and then eventually I started doing some guiding, uh, mostly in Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. But um, um, that's kind of... I think it was the foreign trips that really pushed me harder than the than the U.S. trips. And then back in the U.S., I started to pay more attention to more subtle things and, you know, started to develop my skills a little bit more. Well, if you're driving yourself nuts with the old world warblers, yeah, you're... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad that uh, this is the U.S. warblers and not the old world warblers of the book. But I have friends in the old world who are saying, all right, now where's our book? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a tough job. I'll tell you, there's there's some interesting papers that are being written all the time about splitting, you know, the Searsis and the Philoscopus Warblers and all that stuff. But uh, Well, and some of those splits, I feel the same way about those as I, as I do about, you know, a local bird to me is Red Crossbill. Oh, uh, right. And uh, I was, you know, just with someone on, on a little birding trip up in the hills here and we actually had three different types of red crossbill in the same flock. Oh, wow. 
So this is why I'm not a huge believer in those indicating species. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, I see them together. I, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, how about breeding? Do they breed up there, and do you see them on the breeding grounds? There or? was there was young – well, you know, they were all in there. I guess uh, here they might still be – Really mixed age. You know, we had oh. – Almost every conceivable plumage you could think of a red cross bill, you know, from, 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 you know, the, 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 you know, immature, fresh fledging, that stripey plumage all the way to the nice yellows Uh to really super deep reds and everything Uh in between. And so it was a great photo session with these birds. But it's like, wait a second, there's type two I can hear and I can see Uh the bill size and there's type five and I can hear Uh and I can see the bill size. So interesting i have a hard problem i have a hard time with with thinking is that really a true species or were you really jumping the gun on wanting there to be splits right right yeah that's a very interesting question and of course a lot of times the pendulum swings back and forth you know being aggressive splitting and then more lumping and well well it's this weird i think it's this weird human need that we have to put things in nice tiny neat boxes yeah Right, good point. And species don't work that way. Everything is everything is gradations. And fluid, yeah. You know, and and you know, our minds we just can't deal with the fact is that you know what they're still related. They can still interbreed, but maybe they're going in that species direction. Uh huh. You know, yeah. but they're not there come, yet. <laughs> come back in a thousand years and see what's going on. <laughs> or a million years, or however long right. it takes. You know. Right. But, yeah. Interesting point. I mean, you know, one of the things that makes birding popular, I think, is that it is it's cha- very challenging often, but it's also finite in a way that the human brain can handle. So mm-hmm. we we have the sense anyway, whether it's right or not, that we can actually, if we were good enough, identify everything and it becomes sort of a closed system. Oh, I think your connection. A gnats or. <laughs> right. Yeah, your connection dropped there a little bit. <laughs> you still there, Tom? Tom? Uh, Shazbot. I've lost you here. Oh, there you're back. Oh, okay. Okay, so we got a section to take out there. But anyway, you were talking about uh, birding and, and, you know, the... Uh, Nice, tiny, neat boxes. <laughs> you there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you might want to turn your video off. I don't. I don't think this is happening on my end, but it could be. But um. Well, just. Uh, that'll just make there the you stream go. a little bit less dense. So maybe yeah. if there's a. Yeah, I got a. I have a pretty thick pipe coming in. Unfortunately, oh, coming yeah. here. Yeah, I'm on um, Comcast cable, which is usually pretty good. But yeah, they yeah. May have. Well, here we have a big forest fire, so you don't know how much data is being uh, choked up right now. But anyway, right. back to this birding and neat little boxes. What were, What was your idea on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the reasons birding is popular is because. It's very challenging, but at the same time, you have this sense anyway, right or wrong, that you can, if you're good enough, comprehend the, you know, the whole birding world and what, what the identifications are. And there's always a chance that you can identify something. And 
at the end of the day, you, you, you figured out all the shorebirds or all the warblers or most of them or whatever, as opposed to other areas of, of pursuit that might be equally interesting, like beetles or gnats or bees or, you know, mm -hmm. but are sort of beyond the human ability to comprehend in an easy fashion, sort of a neat fashion. Well, you know, I think that's why a lot of birds, and myself included, you know, I've gone into butterflies, and now I've right. gone into the odes. And, you uh, know, if you really want to drive yourself absolutely crazy, start trying to identify dragonflies. Yeah, yep, yeah. You know, it, it, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of my friends are into that uh, as well, as you said. And, and so, you know, you, you get kind of back to the, your life story here, but... You know, you're starting to get back in the birding. You're leading these trips in Southeast Asia primarily. And when was kind of the spark to say, oh, I could write a, a better warbler guide? Well, that's a good question. I think it really happened. I was, I was always thinking about, I mean, it's just the way my mind works. How can I make this process better? That's one of the reasons I was pretty successful at Roland designing user interfaces for digital recorders and so on is because every when I was in the studio a lot, I'd always be thinking, wow, if they just put that particular button here instead of over there, it would save me a lot of time. And So I'm always kind of thinking that way. And the same thing for learning birds when I'm preparing for a trip or something, <clears throat> I'm thinking about, well, you know, I can see this species here, but what is like it, you know? What's similar? And I go thumb through, oh, here's something that's similar. And I'm bending down the pages and I'm like, wow, wouldn't it be a lot better if that bird was also pictured on this page, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of compiling that list of things I want. And I was giving a talk on, um, so that's some of, the, some of the background that was going on. And then I was giving a talk on warbler identification here in New York, and um, that was based on a, a group I was leading where someone saw Wilson's warbler from below, and they said, wow, that looks like, might be a cool bird. I, I don't know. I need to see the, the cap to be sure it's a Wilson's warbler because otherwise maybe it's a yellow warbler. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's really easy to identify Wilson's from below, easier than the side, really, in a lot of respects from from yellow warbler. Right. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking, um, <clears throat> um, well, I put together a talk based on some of the experiences I had in that, that trip with some of these more subtle ID points. And after the talk, someone came up to me and said, you know, you really should write a book on that. That was really helpful and et cetera, et cetera. And then I thought, well, maybe I should. <laughs> and so I started laying out a lot of the ideas that I had in terms of the, you know, the new features that I thought were missing from field guides, um, like the comparison species and transliterated vocalizations that don't really help you that much and uh, so on. And uh, Oh, I thank goodness you said that. <laughs> okay. Um, I despise phonetics. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't like just, them. They're just not that helpful. And um, um, I, do, I do a talk on vocalizations that, um, where I show the, the transliterations of um, golden-cheeked warbler. From, and I pull them out mm -hmm. of every single field guide that I had here. And it's amazing to read them all together because they are totally different, a lot of them. And none of them really help because that, that species has two distinct songs and they have very distinct forms, which makes it easy to identify them, really. But trying to use those transliterations was, like, impossible. <laughs> so, well, well, anytime you put someone's subjective interpretation 
that's why I don't like phonetics. You know, the, yeah. you get to subjective interpretation and how I hear it and what I associate it to necessarily isn't what you associate it to. Exactly. Exactly right. So, um, so that was one of the other things that, that I was looking at. And as I started to work more in the book, I started to do analysis with lots of examples of every species. So I would put them all in front of me in the sonogram form and start to look at the length, start to look at the structures. And I developed this system of elements and phrases and sections, which are basically just simple building blocks, but as you say, objective building blocks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just started compiling catalogs, uh, you know, sort of analytic tables of these, and finding similarities and differences and starting to, to put together that part of the book. And, um, and I started working with Scott Whittle, the, my co-author, who's a great photographer and knows how to deal with media and lots of files and had a lot of good ideas as well. And then, then we um, took it to an agent who was the agent for Sibley and a lot of other, a lot of top birders. And I just happened to, to get enough of a reference from someone who knew me to get for him to say I'll give you five minutes come on in and after three hours <laughs> he was like all right I'm calling all the people I know so um, that's kind of how it happened there just sort of the slow progression now so you know I want to get definitely get back to the all the sonograms and the elements you put into the sonograms in your interpretation of them you know but, you know, when I go through the guide, when I first got it in my greedy little hands, uh, you know, when Princeton was kind enough to send it to me, um, the thing I noticed that jumped off right to me is that color impression schematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that thing. Great. How how did you it, – it, it's like one of those things that you're like, that is so simple. Why didn't I think of this? You know, when, where did that idea germinate from? Well, um, that's a good question. So there are people, this is, I, this could border on the controversial here, but uh, let me uh, just, uh, you can always edit. <laughs> you too, but. Oh, we don't do that here. <laughs> There's a school of birding um, based in Cape May called Birding by Impression. Mm-hmm. And Birding by Impression, I think, has a, very good uh, impetus, which is to say, when you see a particular species, it doesn't matter how you see it or whatever, you should be able to tell what it is immediately just based on this impression, sort of learning the impression that the bird gives you. And, of course, this is, you know, a system that's designed or developed by people with tons and tons and tons of field time. So they've developed this, this sense of impression. But what, what I think is going on with that is that people start when they're birding with the field marks that you find in, like, the old Peterson guides. Like I was saying, the Wilson's Warbler, the black cap. Or with the with little like, arrow going right to it. Exactly, with the <laughs> arrow. And to me, I mean, I actually, I do a talk about, you know, sort of missed uh, or overlooked ID points where I talk about how those arrows can actually blind you to the really important ID points or more important ID points. Because once you make that identification, a lot of people then stop looking. And I think that's one of the great things about these Cape May guys is they take lots of notes. I mean, they're really, 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 really good birders. So, um, 
but what happens is in this process, let's say Blackburnian warbler, you know, you identify it first by the brilliant orange throat and the braces on the back maybe or the wing panel. And if you keep looking at the bird then, after you know what it is, if you don't just go, all right, now I know what it is, now let's go on to the next species. If you keep looking at it, you start to develop a database in your own mind for these distinctive views. So you're looking at the bird and you're seeing it and it moves and you're like, oh, look at that angle, look at the cheek patch on that, or look at the cheek patch plus the braces, or look at the wing panel plus the braces. So you're starting to develop this sort of intricate database of what that species is and some of those views are diagnostic or very close to being diagnostic. And that, to me, is what the birding of impre by impression is. It's those distinctive views that you've sort of stored in your brain as this sort of diagnostic um, uh, array of features or ID points. Mm -hmm. And so the distinctive views are our attempt to say, all right, even after you know what it is by these easy points that are on the left side, continue to look at the bird and if you start to see these other points that we're going to highlight study those and those can be just as useful for identification purposes um, so that's kind of where that came from right and and kind of that generalized i love the generalized no, i should say the generalized form you know with the elements within it i just it's it's one of my favorite things from the field guide right. and uh, and the other thing that's helpful i don't know if I mean, anyone's ever told you this, but as a severely colorblind birder, uh -huh. descriptions of shades does me absolutely no good. Uh-huh, interesting. And so when I have this idea of pattern, and it's the way my mind has always it's worked in birding, I have to go off of patterning rather than color. And so when I look at this, I can, you know, I, I can tell it's a nice little color picture, but it also has the patterning. And I go, okay, now I get it. Interesting. That's great. Yeah, that's and very interesting. So that was what I thought was a kind of a really neat feature. And then the, the undertail pattern. Mm. Now, I know like when um, uh, when John Dunn and Kimball, uh, uh, uh -huh. yeah, yep. when they did, you know, their Warbler Guide in the Peterson series, you know, they were big on undertail covert yep. patterns as well. Mm -hmm. um, now, do you think that it always seems to me that that's more of a value on the East Coast than it is the West Coast. Do you kind of <laughs> see? Well, I'll tell you what. The first time I started to think about this really hard was when I was on the West Coast. And I'm trying to remember what species. It might have been a Tennessee warbler. I think it was a Tennessee warbler showed up out there out of the ordinary. And people were having a heck of a time identifying it. And I said, wow, that shape is a remitter shape, and it's, it's a Tennessee warbler. Look at how short that tail is. Mm -hmm. and, and the West Coast birders I was with at that time weren't quite as sensitive, as you say, to those points as maybe they should have been. So uh, let me, I'm thinking about this now. Well, Wilson's warbler and yellow warbler are West Coast birds, and those are, are birds that I've seen people have problems with from below, as I mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, in general, that's probably true, but um, you don't have as many confusing uh, warblers in the fall migration time, um, so that may be true. But I, I think becoming sensitive to those characteristics are great for all kinds of birding as well. So um, I think uh, I think it's it can be valuable uh, 
uh, on the west also. No, and so when you came up with your undertail patterns, were you kind of going off of pictures and images of live birds or museum specimens or kind of a hybrid of two that come up with your own? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, a lot of it came through photos. That's that's kind of our um, um, sort of was our looking at lots of photos was, was our sort of gateway into a lot of the ID points. I did spend quite a bit of time at three different museums. Um, and for some species, yeah, I was doing some measurements and things based on undertail, like for the Orporornis or what used to be the Orporornis mm -hmm. um, in particular and some other species. Um, I like the John, John and Kimball's book. Um, they did a great job. That's a fantastic book. Um, tons of information in there. Um, and I, what I wanted to do, though, was to organize the undertail section more with similar species together and showing what's diagnostic and what isn't rather than just taxonomically or in, or in some other order. So I think we had some uh, attempt to improve on that a little bit and, and to have all species on there as well. But um, And because, uh, because that area we wanted to sort of stylize a little bit so we could have it in each like in that icon area, we had Catherine Hamilton do some drawings. So we gave her photos and um, said, you know, do an illustration for this so we can use it as an icon as well. And then we decided to use the icons for the Undertale Finder along with where we have them in the master species area as well. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and, and going on with, with, with that and then live birds and, and versus museum specimens, you know, to coalesce this, do you think that, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but you think that live birds are the way to go rather than stuffed museum specimens to get those details? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And one of the great things about cameras these days is that so many people have them and they're cheap and you can take thousands of pictures and you can mm -hmm. really learn from those pictures. So mm -hmm. um, we can go online and look at lots of pictures of the Tennessee Warbler. Now, the problem, one problem is, though, and I would give a shout-out to your listeners on this point, which is when we were looking for photos that we didn't have, and about 85, close to 90% of the photos in the book are ours, um, but we did have to look for some photos. Uh, most people throw away the pictures that we wanted. <laughs> we, want, we wanted the undertail shots. We wanted the, the <laughs> weird angles and the weird crops and so on, because that's how you see these birds. But it was really interesting how many people really just were interested in the beauty shots, you know, the sort of the bird porn shots, we call right. them. Um, the irregular molt or something along those lines, too, I think goes yeah. largely and, you know, people just toss them, you know, oh, well, yeah, it, doesn't, exactly. it doesn't look right. Well, yeah. it's right in the middle of something neat. You know? Right, right. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. So uh, that was a little bit of an interesting thing that we found. But, um, yeah, certainly photos help a lot in being in the field a lot. A chance to see, sort of put into practice what you've been you've been pulling out for the for the book. And, mm -hmm. so. and then you know, I'm just kind of going through the account of the book here. But you know, the next is, and I'm I'm a big habitat guy, and you actually did the preferred uh, habitat, but I kind of think of the preferred uh, strata within the canopy for the yeah. species. Um, what kind of? And I haven't seen another guy really do that. Um, do you think that that 
Notion only works specifically for warblers best, or do you think it has other applications for especially other pastorings? Yeah, good question. So I think it definitely has applications for other pastorings for sure, and that can be very helpful for beginning birders or just to remind you if you haven't seen the bird a lot or recently where it tends to be. Um, of course, in migration, the birds tend to... Um, they get weird. Yeah, get weird. <laughs> yeah, wherever the food is, they're going to go. So you can find, um, you know, uh, a common elephant at the really top of a tree sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, but in general, it's quite helpful. And the behaviors, like Magnolia Warbler, you know, doing that sort of fluttering, feeding thing that it does a lot at the... On the outside, like the Cape. Oh, we have another little connection problem. You still still there? Okay? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, I saw that. Okay. I don't know if we lost any of that. Past yeah, that. we did. Oh, okay. <laughs> Tell me where to start. Oh, so, you know, just uh, what are the other applications to pastorines, I think? Well, what is the application to pastorines of that canopy level notion? Oh, the behavior, yeah. So, yeah, so um, I do think that the, you know, where the bird feeds and where it tends to be comfortable is very valuable for all passerines, for, for warblers and, and all birds. Um, as we were discussing um, during migration, birds can tend to end up in places you don't expect because they're really after the food and they're ready to move on as fast as they can. So you can find a common yellow throat at the top of the tree sometimes. But... But generally, they still apply. You know, the black and white's going to be creeping on the trunk. The pine warbler's going to be along the trunk often. Um, Magnolia's going to be doing the sort of flutter feeding, uh, Sally, uh, not Sally, but um, um, hover gleaning right. from the tips. And uh, that's why we did the behavior icons as well as where they're going to be because there are differences in behavior. Black Vernon's going to be inside the tree at the top. Cape May is going to be outside the tree at the top. So those are hints that it can be very helpful uh, in locating birds as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, the next thing you do is like, you know, we got, you know, the general patterning, the ID, we, we got where it's at. Now you have the age and sexting portion of it, which I love because I think so few birders pay attention to both age classes and molt associated with age classes. And I, and I really enjoyed how you guys spent quite a bit of time, you know, going through images of different age classes and the molts. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, that's definitely a frontier for birders. And it's been treated fairly well for banders. So when you have the bird in your hand, you can measure certain feather lengths and so on. Everyone breaks out their pile. and. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. And um, uh, the Dunn and Garrett book covers aging and sexing pretty well. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very, I mean, it's all text, basically. Right. So it's a little bit hard to follow and to understand. One of the things that I did that I, that I think is very helpful is we have that um, coding at the top that tells you what is separable and what isn't separable and what is sometimes separable. Because um, that can quickly give you an idea of um, what you shouldn't, shouldn't be bothering with in that sense. Um, and Scott, also my co-author, did a lot of work on the aging and sexing and his he's always sensitive to people saying, well, it's a female, it's a first year female. 
but actually there's a clinal you know thing going on with the plumage so you can't always tell that and so we tried to say well when you can and when you, when you can't and uh, the other thing that we found in field guides too which I've seen in almost all the field guides is there's a conflation of the ID points that separate species one from another and that separate ages within the species mm -hmm. so sometimes there'll be a, a point noted such as um, you know low contrast between the, the head and the back on a blue-winged warbler, for example. And that's a really good, important ID point for separating first-year females from the rest of the, the broods. Um, but you can't tell if you don't know that, well, is that something that helps me identify it from some other species that's like it? Or is it, you know, is the streaking on the head a key ID point? Or is that just for aging? And so we wanted to make it super clear What's, what are the key ID points for separating species? What are the important ID points for separating the ages and sexes? And mm -hmm. so on. And that's why I was just glancing down at Tennessee Warbler. and I, I love the admission. You go, adult male and first-year female may be separable. Yeah. And nothing else. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's one of the important contributions of this book is to tell people you have to be really careful, and a lot of times you cannot tell. Yeah. Because there's so much overlap. And, as, I mean, I know Scott, he lives in KMA. He's heard lots of birds come through and go, oh, that's a, you know, that's a first-year female black-throated blue or whatever. And, in fact, you can only tell that under certain circumstances with, a, you know, without a, a handkerchief or whatever. But um, so he, so we were trying to, to make people more sensitive to what can and can't be separated and just to, just to point people in that direction. Well, and there's something to the more advanced birders get, and I, I, I think it's any pursuit, that you tend to veer into a lot of hubris about mm. your own skills. Mm. Yeah. And 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 you you lose that ability, that humility to go, you know what, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. You know, because I've run into so many people, they have to ID everything. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, it's okay to go. I don't know. You know, especially you know, when you even get down to age and sex classes. Yeah. I, I think it's perfectly acceptable to say no idea. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, you're absolutely right. And one thing that you can do nowadays, too, is you can take photos of the bird and then go back and you can see some things that you were really hard to notice in binoculars, like sometimes primary projection or the wear mm -hmm. of the primary coverts. Um, you know, or molt limit, things like that, that that can be tricky to see as a bird is moving around, but you get that photo and you have more opportunity to do some aging and sexing then too. Right. And, and you know, like I said, that's, I think that's, you know, the, that whole pile, I think so many birders got the idea that they could, they could translate these in hand uh, characteristics mm -hmm. and translate them to field birding. Yeah, and I, th I think we're still left with a lot of remnants of of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we spoke to a lot of banders, and uh, we have to really thank the banding community mm -hmm. for helping us with some of the photos and also just for the information. Guys like to Tony Lugering and so on, who had spent lots of time banding birds, they were very forthcoming, saying, "If you see this species, you will not be able to age it unless you can measure it." Mm -hmm. or feel the brood or whatever, you know, the brood patch or something. But um, 
So th those guys who've had a lot of experience with that were very helpful with this as well. Well, and, and that's, I think, that's the value of the banding community. I mean, we do have a, a stack of information from those guys. Yeah. And, but it's just that it's not necessarily all transferable. You know? Right. And, and yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about the meat of the book, at least the meat for me of the book, are the, are, is the wonderful sections on vocalization. Right. And, you know, I... I I think it has to do with your background as a musician and then working for Roland and doing all the digital, but you really rely on sonograms, which I think gets a lot of uh, kind of passing mention. You might see a little sonogram next to, a, in some field guides, a little sonogram, but no real explanation of it. And you went above and beyond to really explain sonograms and then they come up with a structure within the sonogram. So how did, how did all that kind of, Accumulate. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think I, the sonograms for me are the tool, the visual tool that allows us to discuss the objective structure of the song or the structure of the elements for that matter. Um, and so as I was studying this myself, I was using sonograms all the time. And then I realized, well, if we're going to convey this information, the only way we're going to be able to do it is using sonograms. And I started with a simple system of dividing the song up into its sections and, you know, figuring out what's repeated and what isn't. And then that sort of the, the phrases and element uh, language kind of proceeded from there. Um, it took us a while to figure out what the nomenclature should be because I, I didn't want it to... I didn't want to use words like note, for example, because they have a lot of connotations of pitch and connotations of quality mm -hmm. that a lot of the bird songs don't, and or calls in particular too. And um, well, and plus some birders don't have the musical background to the one yeah. I would say staccato. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's sometimes hard to to walk away from that terminology because you use it so often, you know, but. But yeah, you're right. We tried to keep it as generic as we possibly could. And the, the key thing for us is to just help people hear better what the structure of these songs are. And we uncovered a lot of things. We did a lot of original research in the book on vocalizations. And we found things like, for example, Yellow Warbler, um, as, as you know, can sing many different songs, accent mm -hmm. songs on accent songs and so on. But in the second section, they always sing at least two elements and usually three or four. Mm -hmm. Magnolia Warbler never sings more than one in the second section. Hooded Warbler never more than one in the second section. So you can immediately separate those species without hearing any pitches, without, I mean, you have to know that a section changes, but without knowing anything about, you know, quality even or anything by just going, there's one, th there, there's a bunch of things, there's one thing and there's other things. Or there's a bunch of things. There's two or three things, and there's other things. Immediately, you've separated, you know, yellow warbler from a couple of other species. So it's that sort of objective um, analysis that we've tried to do for all the species: um, the water thrush, the yellow-throated warbler, the separating painted redstart from uh, Audubon's warbler. All these, all these trends of figuring out how many things there are that are repeated and how they're repeated um, can really help you a lot when you're identifying and memorizing songs too. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think having the sonogram picture in your head is makes it much easier to memorize, at least for me, to memorize songs because you're you're really seeing the structure. It gives you a visual image to use, um, which makes it easier. And then calls, you know, vocalizations that are very very short. Um, I found that talking about calls really helped when I was using a sonogram because I can more easily show what's a what's a down slur or an up slur or, or or what has very fast attacks or what has non-harmonic um, or so non-even harmonics where where you've got this sort of cluster of sounds that are happening and how that timbre is different from something that doesn't have that and it just makes it much easier to to see and hear and everything I think. Mm-hmm. Now are are you still a fan of using those terminology of song and call? Wow, that's a very good question. Not really. <laughs> yeah. And there's been some controversy here. We we did not know what to call the calls. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we've had a little a few couple of battles with people over what we, what those names should be. Uh, in most of the literature, and I, I went through a lot of the literature to try and figure out, well, is there any consistency in, say, what a bird is doing when it's during the day in a group versus at night flying and um, so on, migrating. Um, and c- the, the word contact, contact call, is used quite a bit um, in the literature. Chip is used a lot, but that's often just as a transliteration rather than a real technical term. Um, the, and the, but there are other people who think that contact calls should apply to what birds do at night while they're flying, which is a very legitimate thought, which is this is when they're keeping in touch with each other. You know, they're ju- engaging their distances. They want to make sure they don't run into somebody. Um, and should maybe that should be called the contact call. Um, and the flight call is sometimes given at night, you know, while birds are flying. That's kind of the main way that term is typically used. But they also use it during the day a lot. Um, some birds, when they're just feeding, like worm-eating warbler, hardly ever gives what you'd call as contact call or chip call, but often gives the flight call. Uh, mm-hmm. Same with uh, um, <clears throat> black pole and bay-breasted. They hardly ever give their, their chip call, but give the flight call during the day, and not necessarily when they're flying. So those terms are very confusing and imprecise, and there's a lot of research that needs to be done on what these calls are. Some people wanted to call them alarm calls, but I don't think there's good evidence, at least from my experience, that, that birds are particularly alarmed necessarily when they're using some of these softer calls. Um, so, you're, yes, you, I would agree with you that I, it's, it's a very gray area. Um, I read a report uh, from uh, some field work that somebody was doing in Europe where they had identified, I believe it was 17 different kinds of short vocalizations that the chaffinch did. Mm-hmm. And they were able to link those to different different meanings. One was predator below. One was predator above. One was I'm ovulating. One was there are nests in the egg. Or <laughs> right. I mean, eggs in the nest or whatever. So, I mean, I don't know anything about that study other than reading just a synopsis, but... Um, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done on what these calls are for, how many types there are, and so on. And do you? And I know that this is my own. And I know I've been accused of anthropomorphism on this, but I I'd really like to see the word language used. Mm-hmm. 
when it comes to these avian vocalizations because it's obvious that you know just like you're saying about the research in the chaff finch mm-hmm. and and that is only 17 that a human being could decipher right right you know is there little complexities in terms of yeah. timing that we don't understand or in terms of of volume or who knows we know what yeah. those other cues are and so I'm one to say, why don't we just, we treat it almost like we treat a human language mm-hmm. instead of saying, oh, it's song call and then, oh, some subsections of calls. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I think we just don't know enough now. Um, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do was for the first time ever give representations for at least two types of calls for every warbler, mm-hmm. the so-called flight call and the so-called chip call. So at least we've cataloged those types of calls. And for the chip calls, there are often a couple of examples for each species of different pitches and so on. And they can be very useful for identification, you know, when you learn them. Even the fact that birds do the short vocalization can be helpful. For example, um, Blackburnian warbler does that very short vocalization very often in the midst of singing. So it does its little and then it will sing the song. Whereas cerulean warbler never does that, like ever. And if you're confused, I've seen people confuse those two species, and as soon as you hear the chips, you know it's definitely not cerulean warbler or whatever it is. Um, And so knowing some of those things and just becoming sensitive to those calls. Some guys like Michael O'Brien and Bill Evans and uh, Andy um, Farnsworth and so on, uh, Mike Lanzone, are doing amazing work on you know, sort of repertoire of calls. And it's it's a big frontier, I think, um, for birding and to try to know more about what, as you say, what the meaning is of the calls and just to know what they are, to recognize them and so on um, is, a, is a challenge. But it's very helpful when you're birding to be sensitive to them at least and to start to learn how to differentiate the ones we know about um, from species to species and maybe type of call to type of call. Right. And like I said, I, I, you know, I look at this, that the complexity I think is going to become somewhat overwhelming over time. You know, I think, I think we're going to get to the point where like, oh, here's the 37 call types, you know, for still using that nomenclature of call, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you're right. That's a big frontier. I know that um, Mike Lanzone and Andy Farnsworth, who have been recording flight calls of birds, of warblers and other birds of the species in a confined environment. I believe they are now able to identify using a computer a first-year bird from an adult, for example, Mm -hmm. that the calls, although they're very similar, have certain harmonic characteristics or or length characteristics and so on that allow them to do some of that differentiating. That may that may be able to that's that part of language, you know, that well that's yeah. a young and, and to anthropomorphize it, it'd be that's a young kid's voice, okay. Right. That, that's a sexy female over there. Yes, I didn't hear him use that particular description, but I think you're right. <laughs> well, they, they need to drink more beer, they'll come up with these things. <laughs> but it's amazing the research that's being done too on migration using recordings at night. That's a really cool area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what and that's how many birders are out listening to warblers at night, you know? Hardly anybody. Yeah. Yeah, hardly anybody. <laughs> but they're starting to be some people are setting up recording stations. Uh, a friend of mine set up twenty two 
night recording stations in Cape May to record mm -hmm. all the birds going by, and and some of these other guys like Andy Farnsworth and so on are, are doing a lot of work with that uh, sort of monitoring practice. And Cornell's doing some work on that as well. I guess Andy works with Cornell. No, these are kind of passive stations. Yeah, so yeah. it'll be a microphone and a computer that's programmed to record every night from, say, 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. or whatever. And then they gather all those data, and then they either try and analyze it, get, get a person to listen through it, or they're trying to find computer ways of analyzing mm -hmm. it as well. Well, you know, on that, have they taught – there's a project, uh, Bryce Maxwell – here in Montana, to kind of take this a different direction, uh -huh. uh, is doing remote listening for bats, and then oh. having software gleaned yeah. through the bat song, you know, the bat vocalizations, uh -huh. and then automatically putting them into buckets of, you know, species. It's this, it's this, is this, this is unknown, and then ha so the so personally has to listen to the unknowns. I wonder if those two would translate to yeah. together. Yeah, certainly. That's very interesting. And I know a lot of bats. You can uh, a lot of bat species have their own frequency. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about about it, but um, it might make it easier to do than the birds who are all singing pretty much in the same um, sort of frequency spectrum. But uh, yeah, that that sounds like a great great program. Yeah, it's like I know that it uses frequency. It also uses um, the hertz on the feeding buzzes. Right. You know, I go okay. You know, the feeding buzz is, you know, at this at this um, the individual. Um, I guess you call them blips. You know, it's like sonar, uh -huh. but those individuals, you know, how, you know the the pace at which they're given is accounted for. It's pretty uh -huh. inter it's pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, has there been any interest in taking the way that you've done this? Uh, dissection and representation of warbler song and vocalization and taking that and, and perhaps, you know, I can see it being for sparrows or, or the thrushes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of interest on my part. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there are, as you go outside the warblers, there are some species or many species actually that are not as, um, the songs are not as structurally differentiated as they mm -hmm. are in the warblers. So the warbler is a good area to start in because almost all the warblers sing a structured song where where there's a fair amount of repetition of the structure. I mean, some vary more than others, but um, you can use a good structural analysis for the song. There are other species like cedar waxwing, crow, um, and so on, where they're singing more isolated um calls, let's call them, or, or whatever you want to call them. Um, and then timbre becomes more important um, as well. But yeah, I'm very interested in that, for sure. And so, you know, you, you have the word. Now, I got the audio companion as okay. well to this. Um, has there been any notion of kind of almost doing like a, I don't know if you'd call it a spinoff, but, you know, like a training kind of, you know, with taking what you've done, the Warbler Guide and the Companion Guide, and actually coming up with like a training, maybe it's an application or an app on mobile devices. Yeah. No, that's a good suggestion. So two things, uh, two responses. First of all, we will have an app coming out next spring for the book that will be um, 
the master pages, the finders, um, and we'll have a, a number of features that aren't in the book in terms of helping you identify the birds and comparisons and some other really cool cool things. Um, so in, in one way, that sort of combines the two into one product. Um, but also we are looking at, at ways of helping people learn songs. I've written quite a few articles about how to memorize birds. So when I'm going you know, to a new country or whatever, I try to learn three or 400 vocalizations. And in that process, I've studied memory theory some and tried to figure out well, what's the best way of doing this. So I've written a few articles on that, um, Birdwatcher's Digest, published one, and some, El some Audubon groups and so on. Um, so we're thinking about coming out with some Oh, you there? Uh oh. No. Oh. oh, you there? Yeah, sorry. Looks uh, like we got knocked out. I'm not sure exactly when it happened, but. Oh, uh, we were talking about uh, the memory devices for learning songs. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, as I mentioned, when I was. When I go on trips to new countries and even countries I haven't been to for a year or two, I try to learn three or four hundred vocalizations so that I know as much as I recognize as much as I can when I'm in the country. And during that process, I've spent quite a bit of time studying memory theory, and, and I've written some articles on um, sort of memorization techniques for birdsong. And Birdwatcher's Digest has published one, and some Audubon groups, and so on. And so that's another direction we're looking at for sure. Well, that's that's great. Yeah, I, I love the app idea. You know, this a trainer, a fee, you know, take it in the field with you. Yeah. Because yep. as much as I like this book, I will not be lugging this around in the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what the apps for. There are there are a couple of electronic versions already. Uh, there's a Kindle version. I don't know if the iOS transliteration of the book itself is out yet, but there will be one of those. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the problems, one of the things we're struggling with um, in the best way of delivering this information is that there still is not a standard amongst the delivery platforms for multimedia. Right. So Kimble, uh, Kimble, Kindle and Nook don't really have a way of embedding audio in a format like, like ours, like our book takes. Um, you can have it in a movie, but you can't have it interactive. Right. Apple does have that. Um, but what we're going to do with Apple is also an app which has many more features than just the right. book has. But. And I actually think the apps are, I, I, especially for field guides, uh, I think that's, I think the model, you know, with, uh, with Sibley and what Nat Geo did with their, you know, mobile device field guides, yep. that I think that's what's going to be is that you're really not even going to really. I think it's going to be the point where you're not even really going to bother with an ebook version of it. Yeah. That it's going to be, no, it's an app. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I know some people have bought the ebook version of, of our book, but um, I mean, and, and if they had a really great implementation of multimedia, and they will eventually, they, I would hope they have to, but um, then it would make more sense. But, but right now, the app is definitely uh, going to be beneficial. Definitely. And so, you know, what's, what's other than the app, what's next for Tom? 
Well, I'm actually working on a whole bunch of projects. Some of them you've mentioned about learning songs and extending our system of analysis to other species and a few other things I can't talk about, but some of them are pretty exciting. Uh, one of our main goals with this book and then even more with future project, projects is to really try and help people identify birds. So the traditional field guide uh, format and, and the apps too for that matter are basically catalogs. So here's a catalog of all the birds and go ahead and you know you see something go ahead and find it in here and then we'll help you understand whether it's that or not. And what we're trying to do with the, in the book with the finders let's say the song finders and uh, the visual finders we're trying to say all right here's a quick way to scan what you might be seeing and then when you think I think it could be this thing you can go to that master page and then see everything it could possibly be right there in the same area so that allows you to have a lot of confidence in your identification because if you're just looking at the catalog, then you're like, well, maybe there's something down the road that's close to this, but you know, slightly enough different that, that I should have noticed the black on the wing or something. Mm -hmm. But we'll show you all that stuff in one spot. And in the apps, we're going to develop that a lot more. All right. Helpful. <laughs> so, well, I just got to tell you, thank you for chatting with me and chatting with us. And how did people get a hold of you? Um, the easiest way is through the Warbler Guide website, the www.thewarblerguide.com, and there's the Warbler Guide Facebook, and um, we're uh, doing some a little bit of twittering. <laughs> the social media stuff is a little new for me, as I mentioned earlier, but um, uh, it's quite interesting, and uh, so we're trying to, you know, if we if we come up with things like, for example, I just um, put together an article on white rump sandpiper identification based on a group that I was with in, in New York, and I realized people were using primary projection as the sole means of identifying white rumps, and they were getting lots of false positives, because especially mm -hmm. in the fall, semis can have this sort of extended primary extension that, that um, can be confusing. So I just did a little article on that, how to use tail length versus wing and the throat and the bill and so on. Um, so we're tweeting those things out and trying to broaden the, the scope of the, our sites and stuff, too. Well, that's great. Well, uh, once again, thank you, and uh, we will talk to you later, Tom. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Rod. Thanks. All right. Thank you.